Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Hey, I'm Zane. Thanks for joining me for another conversation on this, the interview series. I get asked, I mean, very rarely to be fair, but if anyone actually cares enough, sometimes they ask, who would I like to talk to that I haven't talked to yet? And on that list for the longest time has been one of the greatest audio adventurers, I would say. Probably a terrible term. You'd probably laugh in my face if I said that, but in a lovely, charming and caring way. <laughs> uh, Brian Eno is, um, I mean, words. It's, I'm not going to go through and give some poxy description of what Brian Eno has achieved throughout his life. It's all there to be listened to. Um, but what is really great is this conversation diving into, I mean, we got out of process pretty quick and, and got into kind of where we are as fans of music and of sound, how important it is in 2022 and how fundamental changes in how we consume music uh, has settled with him and, and he ultimately adapts that into his process. Not one to shy away from the future. Brian Eno is wide open and ready for change. And here he is in a brand new conversation with myself on the interview series, Brian Eno. Well, I want to say thank you, first of all, um, for making this beautiful, beautiful album. Um, I found it oh, deeply okay. moving and at times very sad. And um, and at times I actually felt a joy throughout it, but but never without this sense of responsibility. I just felt like I, I was drawn in and I should listen and I should just really try to feel something here that I can take responsibility for is the best way I can describe it. Well, that's that's a very, very nice comment. Thank you so much. I also wanted to say thank you because I often enter into these conversations trying to walk a line between the past and the future, but in the present moment. And I know that the past doesn't interest you um, in terms of specific detail. And I was very excited about being able to talk about this album and and talk about where it came from and what it means uh, rather than sort of trying to trace it back over this Wikipedia list of things that you've that you've achieved <laughs> yeah. in your life but I am going to ask a cheeky question I'm going to I'm going to use that observation to ask a question which you'd almost qualify as a question about your past um, what is it about the idea of retracing your steps or having to recontextualize things that ultimately doesn't interest you if you could put it down to one thing, I think it's because if you have a history, and I now have quite a lot of history, it has a certain weight to it, and it's it's a kind of inertia. There's a tendency in the world for people, if you've done something and it's been successful, for people to want you to always be doing that same thing again and again. I can completely understand it. I, I'm not blaming anyone for it, but it creates a sort of anchorage that I don't really particularly enjoy. I always say that people are always congratulating me for the album I made 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to happen a lot, you know. Whatever whatever date I'm in, it's a 20-year-ago album that people are congratulating me for. It sort of introduces um, two thoughts to you. You think, was it better? You know, mm. have I actually deteriorated since then mm. which is not a helpful thought anyway but also it makes you think did i have any better idea then about what i was doing that i do now mm. i didn't you know i i always work in sort of at the edge of like i'm sure you do as well you work kind of at the edge of what you understand yeah. you don't you don't generally sit comfortably in the middle of what you know you can do and just do it all over again yeah the, the thrill is to go to an edge that you and look over into a land you've never seen before um and then go there that's actually the whole thrill of working for me if i feel the anchorage too strongly that sense of always looking backwards it just 
it holds me back, I think. I mean, I can really understand why people want to ask those kinds of questions. Mm. And I hope they can understand why I don't particularly want to well, answer I, them. I, I, I think what's beautifully explained, I, to me, it's the difference between a photo and a mirror image. And I think that what happens is, is that you present things to us that become photos that we refer to as we grow through our lives. These albums, yes. these moments are photos. And so we'd like to say thank you for this photo. But really what you're describing is almost a mirror image that it, unless it's, it's the closest thing you can get to looking at, at yourself or at your process in the moment. It, you can't, yes. you don't see yourself 10 years ago when you see a reflection of yourself in the moment that it's, that's, yes. that's the difference to me. Yes, yes. Well, that, that's a good way of putting it, I think. I mean, I do, I do talk about the past sometimes with, with no um, hesitation at all, if it's relevant to yeah. what I'm thinking about now. I, in fact, I just did an, a conversation with Iggy, Iggy Pop. Amazing. Um, and it, it was very interesting because we share. I think he took my slot, past. by the way. I heard he was going to do one slot and I was on a short list. Turns out Brian fucking Eno took my interview, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry about that. Mate. I'm so thrilled it was you, man. I'm so thrilled it was you. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it was it was nice because we did talk about the past a little bit, but but it was sort of natural in the sense that we were talking about a past that we both shared. Yeah. we were both part of. You know. Yeah, of course. Um, of course. So, so that's much easier to do. So you, <laughs> if I had to really isolate the one thing that idealization of the past the sense that, that there was something there that can never be regained and we should always stand in reverence to it mm -hmm. and certainly if i look at my diaries and my notebooks they correct that false impression because i realize it's always been chaos mm -hmm. it's always been experiment and it's always been a certain kind of incoherence it comes with the territory i think mm -hmm. you if you're working at the edge of your kind of taste and your understanding it's going to be a mess it, it'll sometimes fit, things will fall into place quite miraculously on one day or a, one week and then there'll be months of swimming around and trying to get put things together and trying to understand what you're doing i really reject the image that's given of artists of mm -hmm. having sort of completely finished masterpieces in their head and then they just have to somehow bring those into reality. Mm. I think it's the process of working that helps you understand where you're going. You know, there's that great quote from Picasso who said, um, inspiration does come, but it has to find you working. <sighs> so it's no use sitting in a chair and waiting. You just keep doing things. It's like an athlete. You know, the athlete doesn't practice only on the day he's going to do a race. Yeah. All the rest of the time, He's sort of staying in touch with the whole thing, staying toned up. Yeah. In a, in a sense, there are no days off for an artist. But there's, of course, there's no real work either. <laughs> That's well, the was, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you encounter lots of uh, musicians or athletes, if, if we stay in that, that are at various levels of match fitness. Um, yes. And, yes. and when, it's, when it's time for them to come into a room and record, in, in many respects, and, and you've successfully removed yourself from, from these distractions and considerations, so you have altitude to see them for what they are, but artists don't often have the luxury of coming uh, into a studio without having just done 300 shows. 
Yes. Or been in a really devastating meeting about where to go next and all these other things. So my question is, it's like when you're faced with someone who you like, who's who you believe has a gift and something to say and wants to say it, but they're not quite sure how to let go and how to stare in the mirror just yet. Is that yes. is is that the the emotional intelligent part of your what you have to do and and how do you relate to that experience of doing what you do this the more psychological holistic side of it Yes so at a certain point of making something the only useful thing you can offer somebody is something approaching relentless adulation <laughs> you you just want to help somebody you want to make them feel as good as they can about this moment and what they're working on it's like a baby, you know. You don't you don't look at a little baby and say, mm, "Could have longer legs." Uh, not very. <laughs> the eyes aren't very nice. <laughs> you, you, you don't pick things apart at a sensitive moment. At, this, at the right at sensitive moments, you just want to give it some body to mm. make it come to life a little bit, mm. and then you start looking at it and saying, "Well, now we could perhaps fix this." So I think. A lot of working is trying to decide at which stage of the creation of something you're in. Are you at the stage where it needs life blown into it, fire blown into it, to take life, if you like? Or are you at the stage where it's now substantial enough to, to withstand a bit of criticism? It can now You can now start saying, okay, let's look at it from another side. How can we change it? How can we, what's the strong point in it? What's the weak points in it? How can we optimize it? You know, it, it really is timing in a way, I think. In fact, I suppose one of my characteristics as a collaborator is that I'm shamelessly enthusiastic. I, I get very excited about seeing th- something coming into being. I really love watching something being born. You know, when, when an idea starts to take shape, it's the most thrilling thing. I have no hesitation in doing that undisguised, even if it's quite crude and clunky and so on. If I see the gleam of something new in it, I want to help it along. Uh, for instance, I one thing I ban in studios, actually, I really don't like it, is when people say of something that's just starting to develop, they say, oh, that's just like, <laughs> then, then they name another song, you know, and you think, okay, that's killed it. <laughs> it kills it because... You are then either stuck with trying to imitate the new thing, yeah. the old thing, yeah. or trying to avoid it. Well, context, has no, way, context you, has no place at that moment in time, right? That's right. That's right. You're making, you're building context. You don't want to, you don't want to be stuck with an inherited one. So I think there, there are timing issues. But, but I think the main thing is that I love seeing things come into being. Yeah. And I'm interested in helping that process. You know, the whole idea of those oblique strategies cards was exactly to do that, to say, okay, sometimes you hit a dead end. It's completely natural. Even in a good working process, you sometimes arrive at a sort of cul-de-sac. You yeah. don't know where to go. Yeah. So I just thought, well, wouldn't it be useful to have a way of flipping you into another thought pattern, into another a different set of rails, you know, so that you're not stuck in this one place going round and round. In doing that, you actually did so much for the creative experience because I feel, as as someone who makes music as well as tries to understand it and speak to artists about the 
about inspiration is execution is to me the hardest thing. Mm-hmm. I think I think we get drawn naturally into a place of expression and creativity and it's wonderful. And then we're faced with the kind of cold, hard reality that at some point you should finish and let this thing go. And I think mm-hmm. yeah. in creating that sort of met new metric you said it's okay if you if you f- feel that fear there's other ways to get to execution without mm-hmm. having to face down a nine foot bear in a bear pit <laughs> that wants to kill you <laughs> yeah well i i always say beginnings are easy endings yeah. are hard yeah beginnings get easier and easier actually you know there's there's so much technological assistance to beginning so many ways of getting something started like you know rhythm machines and chord pattern makers and all that sort of thing so there's lots of ways of getting something pretty respectable going quite early on again to quote picasso who who said there's nothing worse than a brilliant beginning (laughs) (laughs) and I think what where what is this means, where, where is this Picasso's greatest hits that I need to find because you've given me two <laughs> absolute monsters in the last five minutes. Yeah, I think they're the only two I know. I might I might know a couple more, but I think that was his greatest hits. In pretty this good, line. pretty good. Uh, two hit wonder. But that that feeling of terror you feel when you've done something that, and you know it's good and you just don't know how not to ruin it you yeah. think i know I, everything you try on it yeah. makes it worse yeah. and yet you know it's not finished yeah so i tell you another good one in the sort of adages about creativity thing rem koolhaas the, the architect said this to me this was about 20 years ago and they weren't using computers much in in their design offices they were still sit around a table using things like this and this and this to, you know, that's that building there, and we have this room, this hall there, and so on. And so they were doing it all with boxes of matches and pieces of card. They resisted going to the computer. And I said, um, why do you do that, Rem? You know, why do you hold back from the computer stage? And he said, it's because of the premature sheen. So he was saying that the problem with you can make anything look really good really quickly. I if love you, that if you've got the right texturizers and so on in the computer so you can you know you can put little people in the in the town squares and clouds in the skies and everything and suddenly you think wow i've got something here yeah but you've gotten but you away from really. the you've gotten away from the actual original soul the original purpose of it y- yes that's right you get you can so he calls that premature sheen i love that and um i'm very aware of that when when you're working that it's it's now very easy in studios to yeah. get premature sheen very easily. And it makes you think, wow, hey, look, it's nearly done. Yeah. And it's a long way from done. Yeah, this album is done. I hate to break it to you, but Forever <laughs> Never No More is done. Um, yeah. It's an emotional experience. And I, I, feel it, I feel like it knows it. Sometimes I think art is created and it finds us and then we turn it into something that means more than perhaps even what it knew it was in the first place. But yes. I feel like, and I'd love to know whether you were conscious of this at the time, because from the words, the questions, the revelations put, to our, put at our feet, to the performances, even deciding to work with your own family, the result is very emotional. It, it is for me, actually, as well. Yes, more than I expected it to be. It was like a, a chemical experiment that suddenly 
exploded in a way I didn't expect. So the experiment was to say, okay, I've been doing um, what you might call landscape music, if you like, for quite a few years of making atmospheres and moods and places, really, rather than narratives. They're not stories. They're places you can go to, mm. musical places. And put it, dropping a voice into that didn't sound that um, revolutionary to me. I wanted to try it. There was a sudden chemistry to that, which I didn't expect. For a start, it was very easy to do. I didn't expect that to be the case. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm working over landscapes that miss a lot of the things that normally happen in ordinary songs, like no beat. There's no metronome. There's no kind of structure. No, no structure, no, no chord patterns. But you, know. you found your architecture really easily. You can hear that. Like you found the placement naturally of these thoughts. I know, and uh, it's still a little bit of a mystery to me how that happened. <laughs> it came much more naturally than I expected. Uh, so I would work on the soundscapes for quite a long time. Um, some of them were things I returned to, you know, dropped them for a few months and came back to them. Some of those soundscapes are quite old now. At, at least they started a long time ago. And then finally when I picked up a microphone to sort of see, well, what person exists in this space mm. and what is that what is that person feeling the voice is really there as a kind of almost like a narrator mm. not so much as a personality but as as somebody to represent a human having feelings if you like that sounds a little bit abstract but what i want to say is that it isn't necessarily me it's not autobiographical in a mm. certain way mm. um it's just meant to be a-N-O-Anonymous, A-Anonymous or what they call him. But that makes total uh, sense because if, if you look at great canvas art or you look at, you know, people who move into a space to to try to paint something or create something that speaks an emotion or, or brings an emotion to life or brings a time to life, I don't look at each brush stroke and go, well, I don't think of the hand that, 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 that painted it. I don't think of mm -hmm. the individual painting it. I never think of, 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 of art in that way when I'm looking at it. Yeah. And yet we're drawn into this through music where the ego is this kind of, it is like an un, you cannot separate a lot of times the ego and the identity from the music mm. and what you're hearing. And so in a way this makes total sense because when I'm listening to it, I don't feel like I'm listening to Brian Eno sing to me or speak to me. I feel like it is part of an overarching consciousness that this project is achieving to create. God, I'm very happy to hear that, I must say. <laughs> I'm very happy to hear that because it's a bit of a tricky tightrope to walk on that one, you know, because um, it's very hard to resist saying, oh, that person's singing, that must be that what that person thinks. Yes. It's connected to that person. Whereas when we go to the theatre, you know, we see somebody acting in a play. Well, you don't stand there thinking that actor really believes this that actor is that person you just say oh that person's playing a role in a in a picture yeah um and we completely accept it with with theater but somehow with music we particularly popular music we, we can't think that, let chris martin off the hook it's really crazy <laughs> yeah it's true we always assume everything is autobiographical yeah and i think that's partly because in certain ways, anything that came out of pop music, even if it's something as unpop as what I've just done, still has that connection to performance mm. and to 
teenagers and their, you know, the idea that what artists do is express themselves. I've never thought, I've never been interested in the idea of self-expression, actually. Mm -hmm. um, what, I've, what I've always wanted to do is to make the music that I thought ought to exist. Um, I'm sure you've had the same feeling where you think you hear something and you think, wow, that's really nice, but it could be better if they did this and yeah. this and this. Yeah. And you start kind of remaking it in your mind. Yeah. And then you realize you've actually come up with a with an idea, a new idea. A lot of what composers do is try to improve on what they already hear out there. This is great, but it would be better if they hadn't done this mm if they left out that and if they did more of that. That draws into question this, and I'm, this is so interesting because I was talking to a friend on the weekend about the idea of originality, right? Every time I go to do something with somebody, if it's like an elevated visual conversation or whatever, you be, the amount of times that artists at a certain point in their career, their managers, their represent, representatives turn around and go, well, can we just do something original? Like we're really open to original ideas, something that's never been done before. And a little part of my heart just sinks. Because, and not because I don't have aspirations to want to do things that feel fresh and exciting and I don't want to retrace old steps, mine or anyone else's. I think you've just narrowed the, the possibility yeah. for us to do something great by putting it under an umbrella of something original. Yes, yes. It's, it's not a good aspiration to start out with. It sort of sends you off in some pretty unfruitful directions, I think. I mean, I always follow feeling. So I'm really not interested in, in anything very much until I start to feel something from yeah, it. Yeah. So until that point, I'm very happy to experiment with new software and new this and that and the other. And that I think of that as learning my craft, actually. What are the new tools available? What yeah. can you do with them that nobody thought of doing before or nobody could do before? And... I'm happy with all that, and I do it and keeps me going. It's like staying in in tune if you were an athlete. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes you think, oh, suddenly there's a feeling. That's when I get interested, when I start to feel something, and I think I don't recognize this feeling. I don't quite know where this comes from. Yeah. Then I get interested. I want to sort of pursue it and expand it you know find okay let's there's the feel it's a little bit of feeling in the way that that melody curves there how do i get more of that but you know on this album on forever and ever no more most of the time you're working with people who try to achieve that feeling and then present that feeling job done move on to the next feeling when i mm -hmm. listen to this album i feel like it's really it's yearning to feel mm -hmm. I, I actually don't feel you actually, I'm sorry if you take this as an offense, I actually don't think you actually achieved it entirely because I think that it, it no. it's not the purpose. The point is to, I'm, I'm searching to feel something when I hear this. Mm -hmm. Yes. I had a realization which probably most other people have when they're about 18. It just occurred to me quite recently that the primary job of artists is to create places in which you can have feelings. I more and more think that the job of art is to present you with other worlds, and they can be novels or they can be films or they can be pieces of music or paintings, but essentially they're, they're worlds of some kind. The process of engaging with them is saying, okay, I'm going to live in that world for a little bit. 
Uh, I'm going to exist in that and see what it feels like to be in that world. Mm. That, to me, is the most important thing that we do really as humans, where we we probe the possibilities for the future uh, and for alternative locations and so on by living them in a model, uh, in in a simulated form. So I don't have to go and live in a totalitarian society to have an idea of what I might feel about it because I've read 1984 and I've mm. read Brave New World and I've seen Brazil and you know the, the whatever that film was about um, a society I already understand the feelings att- attached with those things without having to have the physical risk of living in them mm. for me art is a safe space to have feelings in this is very clear to me when you look at children playing we, we all know that children are learning when they play. They're putting things together. They're finding out how hard this is, what makes that break, how they feel about these other people. You know, we learn everything in, in our childhood about materials and ourselves and our capabilities and our relationships with people by playing, actually, by doing them in simulation. You know, what about if my tank is two times as big and goes faster. We're pretending and we're kind of what-ifing all the time when we're kids. And then um, we're told to get serious and get educated and (laughs) sit exams and so on. We stop describing what we're doing as playing. But in fact, I think children are learning through play. That's obvious. Mm -hmm. But adults are playing through art. I think that's where we play. We carry on playing, but we call it art and we Mm. call it going to the theater or we call it getting a new album or whatever we call it. But I think that's still the same instinct to see what other worlds are like, to see what it's like to be in in this place and what feelings we have from it. So, Brian, have you ever worked a day in your life, if that's the case? No. (laughs) I I did have one job. Uh, for about four months when after I left art college I was a proofreader and a paste-up artist right so I put a little newspaper together not mine it was a shitty newspaper actually but my job was just to juggle the ads so you could fit some copy in between them Uh, well in fact it was the other way around juggle the copy so you could fit more ads in yeah Um, but that's that's the only proper job I ever had really Wow. So I've been, yeah, I've been playing. <laughs> I've been playing for years, decades. You've been blagging it ever since. Ever since. <laughs> you know, I, um, I've become, I'm becoming quite good friends with someone who obviously is very dear to you uh, and you to him, and that's Fred. And, uh, oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, and just such a beautiful soul. Um, yes. And we had a really lovely conversation I, uh, I watched it actually. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, you, oh, yeah. I, I watched. I, I didn't watch all of it because I was sent an excerpt of it. Right. And I watched the excerpt, but I really liked it. It was so nice. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love him, and I loved it, and and I loved the way he described you, and he used this word of like the, the this boundless curiosity, almost childlike curiosity that you apply mm-hmm. to things. And it's rare that I get to sort of speak to two people with a, a fairly sort of sharp vicinity of one another about that and not to reflect on his reflection of you because that's just straight up weird. But is, is, <laughs> it, but is he onto something, you know? I mean, like, like, like where does that kind of idea of – the way he described it was that I would see something and yet you would see angles and things about it 
that are, that are there to be learnt and observed that I would have missed because I would have been staring at the shiny thing on it. You know what I mean? Uh, well, I, I have to say, and this is not modesty or false flattery or anything like that, I think of Fred as my mentor as well, in that I learnt so much about contemporary music from watching him working. You know, when I first worked with Fred, I could see he was brilliant. Mm. It's, it's very clear he's a very, very sensitive and good artist. And I was very impressed by that. But I didn't really understand a lot of what he was doing. It took me quite a while to think, oh, my gosh, this is really a new idea about how you can make music. Mm. So I, I learned a lot from him. So the it's a two-way relationship, you know. I mean, I'm very flattered to to be called a mentor mm. of someone whose work I like a lot. But actually, it worked both ways around. Yeah. I started listening to music differently when I watched how Fred was making it. That's beautiful. Can you can you go into a little more detail on that? And how do you have enough space between that moment and realizing what changed for you when when you started hearing how he was processing music and and, and releasing it? Yes. So the first thing I noticed actually was his way of working is quite quite different from the way I was working until then. So. You know, it's very common if you're working, as you probably know, with your, if you're working with Logic or any of these other kinds of programs, that you kind of get a loop going and that's the sort of groundwork and then you start putting things on top of it. And it's quite a kind of linear yeah. building process. What I noticed with Fred is that he would start something and he wouldn't turn it into a loop that is going to run through the whole track. He'd just have it running for a tiny little bit and then he put something else there and then suddenly there would be a big hole and there would be a disruption it's hard to explain this because for people who aren't familiar with these ways of working but what i think most of us would done or would have done is to say okay here's a lump of land and now let's populate it with a few things and so you're kind of overseeing the whole process and putting things in at various points in time he doesn't seem to work like that. He starts something and then he sort of stops and looks around a little bit and said, okay, now we'll go over there with it and then stop and look around. And now we'll go over there. You know, they, they're very non-linear, his yeah. pieces. They don't have the same kind of homogeneity that you would normally get from, for instance, loop-based music. So that, that was the first thing I noticed. The second thing I noticed was where he was taking his sonic material from he's he's often recording on his phone mm. and he's often recording in quite noisy places mm. and he doesn't clean everything off so you get in every piece of recording there's a sort of context comes with it as well yes. the, the sound has a history built into and it and strange little hooks as well like something that happens in the bar suddenly turns into the thing that i'm looking forward to hearing even though it's not the yes. thing in front of my nose Yes, yes, that's right. So there's a kind of, because of the, let's say, the messiness or the uncontrolledness of the original recording situations, you know, people picked up in a bar, as you say, or somebody talking on a train or something like that. There's a lot of sort of extraneous mm. detail that mm. becomes part of the track. And that that is very exciting to me. It makes me think back to that time of painting in the early 20th century when people started doing a lot of collage 
um, you know, the Dadaists and then the people following them. So they're taking bits out of newspapers, but they're not carefully cutting the image out. They're tearing a bit yeah. out. So they have all this superfluous stuff around the edge yeah. of the image, yeah. bits of other things. Who knows what, um, you, what what part of that you would have actually like really been drawn to. Perhaps it was the bottom corner of the advertisement that was next to the article that actually wondered what, what was that advertisement for? Yes, yes, exactly. So that kind of intricacy, yeah. which comes from that way of working, I think that's a real contribution. You know, it's it's completely the opposite from the drift of recording studios, which always want to isolate everything. Isolation, exactly. And he's realized yeah. that actually, you know, we've seen technology become so effective and so efficient that it's basically... Um, it's it's separated us to some degree. If we're not careful, we can find yeah. everything we need without really leaning or asking for help or leaning into the community or the actual human experience. And Fred yes, took, yes. Fred took all those things, and he went out into the real world and he started to put them together. And it makes me think about again: you were striving to make a connection from what we were listening to to what you were trying to present, which was this idea of landscape, this idea of an environment, mm-hmm. this idea of people congregating in a space you would never think was inspiring, like an airport, but it actually is. And you created a world from inspiration, imagination, and drawing upon that to do that. But you didn't actually have a phone where you could go up to the counter <laughs> of Swiss Air and ask somebody where they're going and make a song out of it. And if you could, it yeah, might have been yeah. very different. And you know what I mean? Like, I know they sound different, but in a way, he has, he's kind of picked up the, the baton a little bit and moved into what's possible. Mm-hmm. The big part of it for me is this idea of, I'll take the world as it comes. I'm not going to try to brush all the rough corners off. I don't want it to be perfectly like other recordings of voices I've heard which, of course, is very often what engineers are doing. They'll yeah. say, clean it up. I, I want it to be like uh, Julie Cruz's voice or somebody else's voice. And how, What microphone did they use and what reverb are they using and all that sort of thing. There's, there's a lot of that sort of duplication going on. Yeah. I don't mind it. I just don't do it myself. I'm not interested in it. I, I much prefer this idea of saying, that's a voice and it's saying something interesting and I'll take, I'll take it and its context. I want all of it. I want the whole lot. Uh, and I don't mind that some of that is in completely the wrong key. You know, it, there's artifacts that don't square musically in the usual way. Mm. So that's one thing. But you, you, you used a very important word there when you said community. The, the other thing I think that's very interesting about um, what Fred and other people are doing now is this sense of that you're making something with the people who are listening to it mm-hmm. in a way you're not it's not that sort of old classical idea of here's the artist with the symphony in his head and there's the audience who sit mutely in the chairs and mm. don't cough or anything i mean of course rock music has always questioned that kind of division but it seems to me that what that music is doing what fred is doing and some other people is much more saying Actually, it grows out of you. Mm. It comes out of what you do and say, and and it very it responds to what you do and say. Well, you can do that now in a way that you couldn't do in the past because we have a very now have very efficient feedback systems. People respond very quickly 
you know, you put out a TikTok video and within 20 minutes, there's 15,000 comments. Can we get Eno Talk going, please? Because I'm telling you, I'm tempted to put this entire conversation, all 60 minutes of it, up on my TikTok in one go. Like, I just don't (laughs) care. It's that good. Like, I'm having the best time of my life right now. Like, I don't want to be anywhere else but in this moment. So, and just the way you're describing things, I'm sorry to break the fourth wall, but you're just talking so beautifully. We need Brian Eno Talk right now, like immediately. I'm actually going to drop a bomb. There you go. Brian Eno talk. Done. <laughs> so are we in it now? We're in it now. I'm introducing from, from the concept on. from right. There you go. I'm. This is the context of actual life for me and you yeah. on TikTok. Now you're right. He's, he's that, as you beautifully described it, that feedback loop, he's not trying to, to, to get away from it. He's actually no. letting it pour through his art and through his spirit. It's wonderful, you know, because we're, of course, we're constantly being told and it's constantly true that humans are being atomized increasingly atomized you know separated off broken down into you as an individual with all your individual tastes and you've got to have your own toaster and washing machine and wide angle television and everything else and i've got to have mine and we've all got to have our own particular shoes and so on so this this sort of atomization of the world that has occurred really as a result of uh, capitalism and mm. lots of different products prol- proliferating. I'm so pleased to see the opposite also happening, that there's a kind of a new movement that says, no, let's just reuse things. Yeah. Let's let's yeah. find things and make sense of them again, yeah. use them differently. Yes. I mean, my daughter's generation, my two younger daughters, and the kids younger than them even, absolutely refuse to go into a clothes shop to buy new clothes. They just find things and they put them together and make really interesting same with our, combinations. Same with our son, our youngest 14-year-old. He won't buy anything for less than five bucks. I mean, if it's not pre-used, pre-owned, then he can't cut it up and add it to something he's not interested. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that's wonderful, don't yeah, you? Totally. It just gives you faith in the human spirit that, yeah. that all the huge amount of advertising doesn't dissuade people from sometimes coming to their own decision. I mean, that's a fundamentally anti-capitalist decision. Yeah, It says, I'm not going to consume anymore. There couldn't be anything more radical in in capitalist politics than to say that. We have enough. I'm going to get off. The, yeah, we've, I've got enough. And and in fact, I'm, I'm proud of it. I'll, I'm proud of my frugality. You touch on that on this album for sure. You talk about faith in the human spirit. I feel like you're really searching for it on this project. Uh, I really do. Um, it, 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 again, it gets back to that yearning, a search for something that's more meaningful, um, yes. which in itself as a statement could be seen as super traditional, super trad. But I, I, I get that in a very real way here. And, I, and you ask real questions and... And I, I sort of wonder, as you were putting this this album together and collecting your thoughts and actually probably listening back and wondering where that might have come from, um, where you found yourself as a, as a human being, as a spirit on this planet at this moment in time, aside from the art, what is inspiring the art in terms of how you feel right now at this point in your life? I feel... I have a kind of optimism because I see the biggest movement in human history going on right now, which is, let's call it the environmental movement. Millions and millions and millions of people all thinking about the same thing. Mm. Millions of scientists working on new technological solutions that are very interesting, many of them. Millions of 
people who think about governance, working on new political systems like citizens' assembly and global assemblies, different ways of choosing leaders and organizing you know, government structures, mm. new forms of economics being born. There's Everybody's working on this problem. The only problem is we don't know about each other. This new movement is so strong and so powerful and and every day coming into being and strengthening and knitting together more strongly. And at some point soon, it will become self-aware and yeah. we'll suddenly realize, yeah. oh my God, we're all on the same side. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're all doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I, In fact, I want to make this t-shirt saying we're on the same side. Yeah. Because... That's my name. There's only there's only one fight, and we're all all on the same side of it. Actually, semi avemo and then semi large because I, I I couldn't agree with you anymore. I it's funny because I've spoken to a few people who are dedicated to these kind of conversations and to ultimately leaving the planet and leaving our species and leaving all creatures who exist on this planet in a better place than we were when we first arrived, which it has yeah. not been going down that road. And and every every one of you says this a similar thing, which is that within your frame of reference, you feel optimism. Within the conversations and the meetings and the and support groups that you're in and, and that you spearhead Earth Percent, you know, amongst others, that you feel confident and you feel optimistic. And yet all we hear in the media and through information yeah. timelines is the opposite. And so the disconnection yeah. there surely is one of the last hurdles to jump. You're absolutely right. That it's That's a problem with media. You know, the old phrase, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. So... Bad news always gets more space. Mm. The good news is slow. It doesn't generally happen in dramatic sudden moments like floods and fires do. Mm. The good news is that there's a vast human community growing and they're working together. I went to a, I spoke at a conference in Barcelona a couple of weeks ago. It was a conference of maybe five, 500 people there or something like that. Afterwards, I was thinking about it. There were probably, that same weekend, there were probably about 150 other conferences similar to that, similar size, worldwide. You know, if you think there were groups of people gathering to talk about basically the same subject of climate justice and climate change and so on. And while I was at that conference, I made about 20 connections, which I felt were pretty strong bonds that I will follow up in the future. Mm. And I thought, okay, so imagine if there were 150 meetings like that, 500 people at each meeting. Let's imagine that mine was an average experience and they all made 20 or so strong connections. Now we're talking maybe 2 million connections being made that weekend of people within this movement sort mm -hmm. of bonding together and finding common ground and strengthening each other, really. And I thought, well, and that must be happening every weekend and probably during the weeks as well, you know. Um, so, Do you know why I love that so share. much? Do you know why I love that so much? If I can maybe just add something really quick is I'd like to, I'd like to do the opposite math. So say mm -hmm. there's a divisive news report that goes out weekdays that reaches, say, a couple of million people. Now, of those couple of million yep. people, say a million of them were even listening. 
And out of those million, maybe 250,000 of them felt something like they wanted to act on. And then say 100,000 of them bothered to pick up a phone and tell somebody about it. And say 10,000 people listened back to that and actually decided that their friend was right and not just having a bad day. And then five, maybe 2,000 of those people decide to go out and start an active movement that is destructive and not helpful and going the wrong way. And maybe 500. So I'd like to actually add to your point <laughs> by saying that the, that the good is winning and the bad is losing. Yeah, I, I really think that's true. You mentioned, you said earlier, we don't see any of it in the media. Mm. And I, I think the media is really fixedly pointed in the wrong direction. It's looking to the places it's always looked, you know, to politicians, to celebrities, I'm afraid, like me, um, to uh, the, the normal places we expect news, news to come from traditionally. Yeah. It's, so the, world it's that, the, that. The, the world that Murdoch built. This is the yes. world that Murdoch built. If it bleeds, it leads. Yes, he, he certainly did build it. And I, I find it incomprehensible how anybody can have any dealings with with him mm, <laughs> just mm, um mm. about 20 years ago around about the time of the iraq war i said publicly i'm never going to do anything with the murdoch organization mm. again and i never have done since i i yeah. just want i i would hate to think that anything i did had helped him to sell more another, papers another or, paper another 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 headline yeah you know why don't we all become responsible for our behavior and in, in that way it didn't it didn't seem to have hurt me at all that i never appear in any murdoch um, publications and so why can't why can't we do that most of us think that it's a pernicious organization so why don't we just say sorry mate not having anything to do with you yeah just like we we're quite happy to say i don't want to invest in companies that build weapons or yeah, yeah. that sell cigarettes or whatever we don't like yeah I think us people in the public world have to put our money where our mouth is, really. I agree. Um, and I agree. not take part in it. But anyway, the, the important point for me is the fact that underneath just underneath the thin surface of everything as it always was, there's this huge new entanglement of roots going on. Yeah, It's so big now. Um, even... 15 or 17 years ago now, there was a book by Paul Hawken called Blessed Unrest. You know, he starts the book by saying over the years, he was he was an environmentalist businessman. He said, I've been going and giving talks. And after every talk, people would come up and say, oh, here's my card. I belong to this or that. Small environmental organizations, some of them with only five or 10 or 20 members. He collected this huge stack of cards. and there's this little film he made where he he shows these cards coming up one by one. They keep accelerating, and there are about 280,000 organizations in 2005 in North wow. America. And he says there were probably a lot more. These are the ones that I heard about. Mm -hmm. So think of that, 280,000 groups, not individuals, yeah, groups. groups. This is when you start doing the mathematics, and you think, hold on. We're vastly in the majority. We are. You know, we're used, to, people in the environmental music are used to feeling themselves as little David fighting the huge Goliath of lobbies and industry and so on. But actually, numerically, 
it's way the other way around. We outnumber the opposition by several thousands of times. We just we just don't don't ever ever allow our narrative to not be distracted or yeah. railroaded or veered off the ground. And I think it it just comes down to simply saying no, like. Actually, yeah. no. I I don't even need to do much more than that, but I'm going to block this out. You don't get to yeah. distract me anymore. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Distraction, I think, is the is the big issue. Um, you know, the the one thing that we all have, which we're not aware of the value of, is our attention. Yeah. Where you choose to put your attention is the biggest political decision you can make. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's also the most valuable thing we have. Our attention outside of the love we share with the friends and family that we call, we bring dear to us, those experiences that we'll carry with us to the last second we spend in this particular mortal era. The only thing yeah. that we have that people desperately want is our attention. Yep, that's right. And that's valuable. Yeah. That's valuable. And and other people, Google realizes it's valuable and Facebook, Facebook realizes totally, it's valuable. Totally. They are much more, more aware of its value than most of us are. Yeah. We squander it, really. Can I talk to you about spatial audio, please? Because if you... oh, oh, God, I forgot. No. <laughs> I want to talk about that. No, no. Yeah. And if you have time, we have time. So I'm not worried about that. But, yeah. but equally, I never get in the way of a good yarn. So, um, so I, would, <laughs> I would love to talk to you about spatial audio because obviously we believe that that is a wonderful development. Um, that, and you, we've talked yes. about technology and we've talked about the tools that are now in the hands of, of artists and creatives that allow them to move quicker and, and, um, and talk about, was it the premature sheen? that you just that, yes. the, we believe as you know that sound there was room to move in sound and and you are someone who has immersed himself literally and and allowed us to do the same thing in sound so i would love yeah. to have a conversation with you about it first of all i should say that i've been making what i call three-dimensional sound installations for a long long time mm. i started really in the 70s of working with my light works and my sound installations and i did it then by having lots of separate speakers with separate players, um, cassette players originally, then CD players and so on and so on. So I had a lot of separately powered and driven sound units. And I loved this experience of being in the middle of a field of sound. Yeah. But of course, there was no way to capture that and to put it onto a record unless somebody else had exactly the same bloody weird complicated system that I happen to have in my studio um, or that I make in installations. Nobody really could hear those results. But I was very aware that the, you know, the step from mono to stereo mm. is a big step. Uh, that, that happened in the 50s, I guess, the 40s or 50s or 60s. Things went from mono to stereo. Big, big difference. So suddenly you have this quite big canvas to paint on you can put something up there and something down there and something in the middle and you have a sense of of a big canvas that mm. you're working on mm. but when you go into three dimensions it's a much bigger leap there's there's a bigger difference between 3d and stereo than between stereo and mono i think then you really are in a landscape you know when there's sounds coming from all sorts of different places and you're not sitting looking at a flat picture anymore yeah even though that's not an unpleasant experience it's there's a limitation to it you know once once you are in the middle of the world of sound 
my God, there's so much you can do. I was it's talking so exciting. To, I was talking to an artist about this the other day, and they were like, I, I like the limitations of stereo. And I said, that's fine. You have yeah. those. They exist. And you can create sure. and you can create in those. And there's value to that. And there's something wonderful about condensing the, the linear and the bleed, the wide and the narrow into one one little beautiful glued piece of audio is a lovely experience. Mm. And it's how I know music yes. coming to a spatial audio. But I said, what the most important thing about spatial audio and about surround is that is that it, it can be a subtle experience. I think most people think that you have to split the thing up into 50 pieces and send them five yeah. five miles away from each other and then stand in the middle of it. And actually, in a lot of ways, it, it, the subtlety is the joy of it. Yes, yes, completely agree. Um, yes, the other thing that people think you've got to do once you can do it is have things whizzing around. <laughs> like in Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> and you think no you don't have to do that <laughs> it's, like, it's okay mate we've all played with the doppler don't worry about it you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> but but what i think is so lovely is is just this feeling of being inside something yeah and surrendering to it you know just thinking okay it's going to happen to me when i started mixing doing atmos mixes the first thing i realized is that I didn't want to do what everybody else was doing with the other Atmos mixers I'd heard, where they're they're basically recreating a performance mm. space. Mm. You know, so mm. we'll have the singer there, we'll have the guitar player there, we'll have the bass player there, and then we'll have reverberations from the room coming behind us and so on. Very nice for recreating the ex a live experience. It works really, really well. But I thought my music isn't live anyway. It mm. has never been live. It mm. never was performed most of it it has it's completely made in studios and it isn't a performance medium so why should i pretend it is so the first thing i started thinking was okay i've got a voice on these on these new songs where am i going to put that voice i thought i'll put it right here not there i don't want to be sitting watching somebody on the screen i want that voice to be inside my head and it's very interesting what happens when you do that. It was more radical than I expected it to be. <laughs> um, that that it sounds like it's inside my brain. And then there are other things echoing off around it. The other thing, of course, that you can do is, you know, you're a friend who was saying that they like stereo. Well, of course, you can still do stereo. Yeah. No problem at all. But to do things that go from being in one point in space and then yes, open out. open out. That, that's an amazing thing. We haven't even begun the journey, individual yeah. experience of this to some degree because everybody's just delivering it like it's a file already yes. done. And I mean that yes. and this, from the minute you hear it, you kind of know where you stand with all these things. It's like, why? And, and that to me is when, this new development in sound becomes a creative decision, not just a mixing decision yes. or an engineering decision. Yes, yes, it's absolutely. Well, like as always happens in pop music, new technologies are nearly always invented for a historical reason, you know, either to make something cheaper, faster, louder, bigger, whatever. Mm -hmm. there's, there's always some historical ambition that you have with that. But as soon as you start playing with these things, you yeah. think, oh, I can do something that I never thought of doing before. Yeah. Something new becomes possible. And for me, that's something new. Well, quite a few new things became. 
I realized become possible with a proper three-dimensional setup like Atmos. But the, the most interesting thing to me was to be able to actually put much more detail in. Once things are separated, they're not all crammed into two speakers. Once you have them separated, your ears, it turns out, are much more capable of focusing and understanding where different things are in space. It's very, very interesting that if I'm mixing something for Atmos, I can have much more stuff in the mix if I want to. Yeah. But I can also have much more silence in it as well yeah. because absences, you know, that's to say spaces, they are much more dramatic. It's once you know that you can fill the whole space and you choose not to, <laughs> that's an interesting creative de decision as well. Well, for instance, leave out the center. Yeah. I, I remember thinking about Miles Davis's records, um, those beautiful albums like um, Bitches Brew and so on, yeah. where it sounded like all the instruments were actually a long way away yeah, from the Yeah, the drums, the, yeah. they're being played really hard, and yet I feel like I'm listening to them 500 meters away. That's right. That's right. And I, I always thought what a fabulous I love that. idea that was yeah. to... to just increase the sound stage so it covers and then right in front of your face is that wah wah guitar thing that's just tearing you apart and it's yeah. like everything it's to me without the the invention of atmos back then I, it was like miles was ordering things in an, in an uncompromising and unorthodox way if it had yeah. to be linear yeah. where the drums go here the bass goes here the guitar goes here the lead, lead instrument goes there he was like well what happens if i put this here move that there so that's what his <laughs> yeah, yeah. that was his experimentation Yes, yes, definitely. Well, I, I just love the production of those albums. Yeah, and suddenly, that It was quite important to me to understand. You know, I started listening to those just when I was starting to doing, doing my own um, ambient stuff like on land. And I was very aware that this was a new compositional possibility that didn't really exist before mm. recording studios. Mm. The The idea that you could create music where one of your decisions is where does this occur in space it's not a decision you have if you're all standing playing guitars together in the studio it's a it's a production decision you know okay you, we all stood in the studio to play this but now i'm going to put you guy out there yeah. a kilometer away yeah and you're going to be right next to me but not very loud and yeah so on. that's what it is um, it's, be, it's, be, it's become a creative space for space and and, and, and yeah and, if anybody understands and knows that and, and is dedicated to that, it's you. Brian, we've um we did it. And I didn't once ask you about Coldplay or U2 <laughs> or, any <laughs> Good the, man. or any of the things that you've done in the past. And that's for no disrespect because I honor the great art that you've given us and continue to give us and the wonderful joy. But it exists and I have it and I love it. And, and I love this new album and I've, I cannot thank you enough for the generosity of your time and conversation. I've, I've had the best time. I knew I would. Fred told me we'd get on like a house on fire. <laughs> okay. Well, it's lovely to meet you, Zane, and I look forward to speaking to you again one day. Brian Eno's brand new album, Forever and Ever No More, is available right now to listen to and stream on Apple Music. There's also vinyl available, which I picked up in uh, my local record store mm. a couple of days ago, which I'm very proud to add to my collection. Thanks for listening. Back again next week with, this is kind of a family affair, because uh, Brian Eno um, brought a young Fred Gibson into his creative process 
and uh, and ultimately just by by sharing experiences taught him a lot. And and Fred Gibson, aka Fred again, talks about that amongst many other things in our next conversation right here on the interview series that's coming next. Until then, take care.